listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Happy May Day and welcome to episode 51 of Belaboured. We hope you didn't miss us too much in our first uh, off week and our new bi-weekly schedule. But we're feeling very refreshed. We are, we are back in action and we have an exciting interview for you today. But um, before we get started on that... Um, as I've talked about many, many times on this podcast in the past, port truck drivers at the nation's ports do a whole lot of lugging of all of the things that you probably buy every day for a whole very little amount of money. In this week, um, port truck drivers at the twin ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach went on a 48-hour unfair labor practices strike and for the first time took their picket lines straight to the marine container terminals including picket lines that were not, in fact, crossed by the longshore workers. So they did, in fact, disrupt uh, some some shipping this week. These drivers are classified as quote-unquote independent contractors, which means that all of the costs for the work they do, maintaining their trucks, gas, tires, etc., etc., licenses, permits, all of that is pushed back on the drivers, meaning that sometimes their paychecks are uh, not very large or even come out in the negative. So these drivers um, have been organizing with the Teamsters and Change to Win for recognition as employees and for fair and legal pay. We've got a short clip here of Dennis Martinez, one of the striking drivers who works for a company called Total Transportation Services. I spoke to the owner of the company, Victor De La Rosa, and he even denied all the regulations. He actually even threatened my family. Because what I'm making right now as a driver for TTSI is just covering the, the expenses. It affects your family, it affects my family. And moving on to the top of the world, uh, we got some interesting news coming from Mount Everest, Uh, some labor news, in fact. You might not think the world's highest summit would be the site of a global labor struggle, but there it is, a tragic avalanche uh, struck and uh, left more uh, about 16 Sherpas and other uh, guide workers on the mountain uh, dead and missing. All 16 are presumed dead at this point. And the tragedy has led the Sherpas to band together and agree collectively, uh, basically just to to stop the climbing season altogether. Uh, As we speak now, there's a mass exodus from the the base camp. And it was not a full-blown strike per se, but it was a very significant, I guess you could say, industrial industrial action in this pristine mountaintop and the climbers work stoppage perhaps work stoppage exactly um and the climbers a uh, work freeze if you will um and the climbers had little choice but to comply because frankly their lives depend on these sherpas who do the death-defying back-breaking work every day of hauling the stuff of these people who have paid tens of thousands of dollars for the privilege of seeking that thrill of reaching the summit of Mount Everest. Sherpas, who are an ethnic group as well as a professional uh, community, they have a special skill set that allows them to prepare routes for people who are otherwise novice climbers, to set up ropes and ladders, and 
Avalanche is one of the leading causes of death. Uh, there have been many uh, Sherpas who have died over the years because they are the first ones out there putting themselves out there on the front lines um, at great risk uh, to life and limb. And uh, the avalanche really catalyzed uh, some of the underlying stresses around these exploitative labor conditions, and it's really shedding a light on the global sort of ecotourism industry. We all like to think that uh, the people who summit Everest are doing it all on their own, and it's full of glory. <laughs> But really behind every, you know, Wall Street CEO who gets his photo op on the top of Everest, there is the very hard, very arduous work of Sherpas who are very ill compensated and often are risking their lives every day when they do this work. So think about that. And maybe this will change the way the tourism industry operates in Nepal and around the world where we, um, for our cheap thrills, uh, we exploit uh, indigenous people. We would never do that. Oh, no. Not in this country, <laughs> of course. Well, not in that country. Right. No, we would never go to the... Well, we've already, well, whatever. We've already wiped out our... <laughs> <laughs> uh, in any case, this time of year um, brings us... Well, we, we've certainly got some April showers going on today as we record, but um, it also brings us shareholder meeting season. Um, this week at the Wells Fargo, you may know, may even bank at Wells Fargo, um, you may also know that it is one of the banks that has been found guilty of uh, racial discrimination in lending, among other things, pushing subprime loans onto communities of color, um, you know, a variety of fun predatory practices. Well, at this shareholders meeting in San Antonio, Texas, Petitions signed by nearly 3,000 workers at Wells Fargo have demanded that they end the quota system for their sales targets and call centers so that workers can better serve their customers' needs rather than pushing them to buy products that A, they don't need, and B, might actually hurt them, such as those, you know, subprime loans. The Committee for Better Banks, which we've mentioned on this podcast before, has been working with bank workers around the country to show that not only do these banks screw up the lives of all sorts of other people, they also exploit their very own employees. Janelle Rodriguez, a former teller at a Wells Fargo branch in New Jersey, said, I know firsthand how unreasonable sales goals force bank workers to push financial products onto customers who don't need them. Wells Fargo is reaping record profits while their low-wage bank workers do the dirty work of exploiting their customers. It's not right. The Committee for Better Banks delivered these petitions at Wells Fargo's in three different cities across the nation, one of which is their headquarters in San Francisco, one of which was San Antonio, one right nearby in New Jersey. Um, looks like a lot of fun. I continue to hope for good things from this bank worker organizing. Okay. And from Wall Street to the city streets, the taxi workers of New York are getting ready to continue their legal battle um, along with the Taxi and Limousine Commission, they're on the same side for once, they're fighting for the right to give themselves a health plan, a health and disability plan that would be one of the first in the country of its kind. The Taxi Workers Alliance, uh, is, which is one of the... Um, sort of leading most innovative uh, independent workers groups that is out there. Um, they have managed to set up uh, their own independent health and disability plan for some of their members. I believe they claim about 17,000 uh, taxi workers across the city at this point. And of course, who is against this? It is the fleet owners. The fleet owners who are technically not their bosses, but basically control all of the conditions of their labor, and even the right to set up their own health and disability plan. Uh, the fleet owners have sued uh, to block this plan, calling it um, a multi-million dollar slush fund uh, for the uh, Taxi Workers Alliance. Basically, 
the Taxi Workers Alliance has set up a nonprofit affiliate to manage uh, these disability and health benefits, and it's designed to supplement the standard disability benefits that they are supposed to get that are administered through the State Workers' Compensation Board. The State Disability Fund is notoriously creaky, full of uh, litigious bureaucracy, and generally not something you want to deal with. And what the Taxi Workers Alliance did was that they set up a, a fund that was is tailor-made for taxi workers. It includes health benefits, uh, vision, dental, things that can be extended to their whole family that are designed to meet taxi workers' needs and also be affordable. And it's designed you know, to offer you know, a modest benefit of maybe 300 to $350 a week for people who suffer um, off-duty uh, injuries and illnesses, um, anything that puts them out of work. Um, and it's designed to supplement a, a benefit that, by the way, fleet owners are supposed to be purchasing for taxi workers but are not. Um, there's actually a statute on the books right now that actually mandates that fleet owners purchase disability insurance, but they've been ignoring that. And while they've been ignoring that, they've been working hard with their lawyers to keep the taxi workers from setting up their own fund to make up for the benefits that they aren't getting from the state system that the fleet owners are supposed to be paying in for. So all this to say that, um, as usual, the law is an ass and the taxi workers are getting ready to go back to court for the right to not have to work sick as a dog on the job. And now we'll hear a short clip from Executive Director of the Taxi Workers Alliance, Borevi Desai. She is talking about the recent court ruling that struck down the plan and their plans to push forward with the litigation so that they can get the plan moving. The fleet owners, you know, they've been the landlords of their own fiefdom for the past 30 years under leasing. And we've been mounting a formidable challenge. And I think if the fund were to be established, the dynamic it will change in this industry is drivers' health, like the need to prioritize drivers' health and well-being will become an, an institutional priority, not just rhetoric. And I think that can have tremendous impact on the economic inequities of this industry. And that's why the fleet owners are so opposed to this. They're independent contractors, which basically means that you're not entitled to any of basic labor protections which keep workers out of impoverishment, whether it be minimum wage or the main thing is a right to collective bargaining. And I think our our approach has always been, you know, drivers are workers and they should be entitled to all of the same protections as as other workers are. And that was Barevi Desai of the Taxi Workers Alliance. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now we have an interview with Ellen Bravo. She is executive director of Family Values at Work. It's a network of coalitions in 21 states working on issues like paid sick days and paid family leave. And she is also the author of Taking on the Big Boys. We'll have a link to her book on our site. And here's Ellen. So it might seem like women have made great strides in education and professional achievement over the last two generations, um, yet we have these other trends that have been emerging recently um, that supposedly mark the rise of the modern career woman, right? Um, and that is actually marked by growing um, instability at work, precariousness of labor, 
um, the erosion of unions, um, other troubling signs that come along with um, this drift towards you know service-oriented occupations. So, in this new economy, does this does this kind of betray the idea of women's progress? And is the current concept of feminism simply failing to incorporate some of these underlying struggles that uh, are plaguing the poor in this country? Always, when we talk about the progress of women, we have to say which women, because low-wage women haven't made much progress, even in the advances that we did get. So yeah, it's good that we have laws that say you have to get the same pay as men if you do the same job. Most women and men don't do the same job, and the jobs women do pay less just because they're women, particularly low-wage jobs like caregiving, home care, um, you know, child care, etc., and that's a problem. It's been a problem for a long time. Uh, we say that um, we've made progress in, yes, it's great that we have more women in political office, but it's still virtually impossible to run for office if you don't have a lot of money or a way to raise it. And that will be always a problem until we change our campaign finance rules. The public sentiment has changed, and that's really good. It, very seldom now do you hear a debate about should women work outside the home. But for low-wage women, the very thing that makes them a good mother is the thing that gets them fired or losing pay. Uh, and until we change those rules, we've really um, you know, gotten ourselves in a jam. And we have people running for president who want to say that if you aren't able to pack your kid a lunch in a brown paper bag, never mind that you can't afford the lunch food or the bag, you don't care about your kid. When it's precisely because you care about your kid that you got fired from your last job when you stayed home with that kid when they were sick and are in the jam you are that you don't have enough money to buy the brown paper bag. So we, we have a, you know, the victim blaming, it may uh, take slightly different forms, but it's just as virulent as it ever was. Yeah, and I think um, sort of the way these ideas get interpreted in popular culture is really key because, um, you know, while we're far from the days perhaps of saying, you know, a woman's place is in the kitchen, we see all these tropes around us about the work-life balance, right, or flexible work, or, you know, leaning in and what it takes to make it for a woman, and there are all these expectations, and yet... Having it all. Yes, having it all, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking of impossible choices, right? Um, so for the women that we work among, it, the the question is much more, will I lose it all than yeah. can I have it all? They've never had anything close to all. Yeah. And the big thing is how to not lose it. And for me, what's really exciting about what's happening now is that there's so many groups led by low-income women, women of color, the domestic workers, the home care workers, the caring across generation, the, the folks in our coalitions working for paid sick days, restaurant workers in Rock, that are charting a new path and saying, we're the ones who are going to make this change happen. I remember, so I used to um, work for a long time for an organization called 9to5, Great Working Women's Group, and when I first met them, my favorite button said, my consciousness is fine, it's my pay that needs raising. I think these women, they know what's the problem. What they're learning through these movements that they didn't know is that it's possible to change it and that they're the ones that can make that happen when they work together. That's what's really inspiring to me. So I'm glad to see, for example, when people like Sheryl Sandberg write her book and say, I know we also need public policy change. We have to have paid leave. And I know I have 
many more resources than most women. I take her at face value that she does know that, and and she did come out to support a bill for paid family leave and things like that. We need a lot more um, activity like that from those at the top. But part the question is, what's our theory of change? And I think for us, the theory of change is that it comes from the bottom. So we want more women in power, but really what we want is more power in the hands of all women and all other groups that have been discriminated against, left out, treated unjustly. That's our goal. Yeah. And not elevating the power of a few women at the expense of... Women. Right. I mean, I guess the theory is that if you get more women in power, those women will then do right by everybody else. But I, that's right, exactly. I think what we've learned is that um, the best way to guarantee people will get what they need is to have the decision makers look like and live like the people most affected by those decisions. Yeah. And of course, a lot of these, these trends that we're seeing in, in the workforce now for all workers, men, women, people who identify as neither, are trends that women experience first, from temp labor to domestic work and other caring professions, part-time work, um, work with no benefits, no security. So, yeah, it seems to me that it's very important to, to everyone that we don't leave out certain kinds of workers from the workforce um, to ensure that ensuring gender equity in the workplace really is important for all workers. Exactly. So, you know, we used to talk about the feminization of poverty. I think we can talk about the feminization of work, the conditions that have been true for female workers for a long time, the things you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. the lack of security, the lack of certainty that you're going to, you know, a predictability that you'll even have enough hours is starting to spread, and a lot more men are now experiencing in warehouse work and other kinds of temp work this huge dilemma we have you know in this country there's no law that says if you and I do the same job for the same employer but I happen to do it fewer hours a week or as a different category call me a temp or call me a leased employee I don't have to get the same base rate I don't have to get any benefits much less equal benefits it's an outrageous continuation of discrimination and it's lawful, and we have to change it, even though it often has a disparate impact on women and people of color who are more likely to be in those jobs. And that's how they get around the legal gains that we've made. So we really need to change the, the way we view what's a basic employment standard. So the past year, uh, we've seen a flurry of state and local activity around things like um, paid leave, paid sick days, um, even some local minimum wage ordinances are getting a lot of traction as Washington continues to dither on all these issues. Um, why do you think local lawmakers especially are catching on to this? Is it a matter of sort of you know lots of organizing efforts kind of coming to fruition? Is it um, structural changes in the economy that are sort of forcing politicians' hand on this? Or, or what do you think it is? I think it's a combination of things. There's an urgency because the economic recovery, of course, didn't happen for most low-wage workers and for lots of middle-class workers as well. And because of budget shortfalls, there were uh, limits on what politicians could deliver. Things like paid sick days and family leave insurance, these are small steps that have a huge impact and usually are revenue neutral for the state or city government that's doing it. So that was, but, you know, it was organizing. If people hadn't organized and made the demand and made it visible that they needed these things, um, it wouldn't happen on its own. And also, they, the kind of organizing, like our coalitions have these great mix of restaurant owners and restaurant workers, people who care about feminism and people who care about faith. 
you know, people who want to end poverty and people who want to end asthma and domestic violence because it affects so many people. And so it's bringing together this great grouping. And I've seen over and over this happen, a business person who says, oh, I know, I can't go along with this. And then a school nurse comes and says, every day my office is filled with children whose parents, when I call them to say your kid is sick, says, please, can you keep them there till the end of school or I'll be fired if I come. And the school nurse is horrified and the business owner says, I had no idea. It's like just unmasking this reality that is invisible to so many people. That's a word that a lot of workers use about themselves. Does anybody see me? Does anybody hear me? And what they're realizing, these workers, is that by speaking together, they make themselves heard. And that, so that's been really great. But it's bringing together this kind of broad alliance that's helped. And one of the components of that are small business owners who, you know, the lobbyists claim, I am the business community. And we, we call it identity theft. They, they steal the identity. And, and these business owners say, you don't speak for me. I speak for the business community. I already do this because it's the smart as well as the right thing to do. I want to treat my workers the way I want to be treated when I'm in the workforce. And um, more and more of us need to create a floor so that everybody's guaranteed at least a minimum. Yes. That's really helped cut through the noise of the opponents who say, oh, the sky will fall, businesses will flee, right. the world as we know it will come to an end. Right? And, but, but that's what they do. They pretend to be mom-and-pop shops, right. and we've helped unmask them. Actually, it's the other NRA, the National Restaurant Association, mm-hmm. um, representing gazillionaires, big chains who can easily afford to do this and and don't want to. Right. And it's the ethical businesses, the small businesses. That's that exactly right. Because they find their bottom line being undercut for doing the right thing. Right? Yeah. So, um, exactly. That, so I guess, like you said, many of these programs are, you know, fairly limited. So many are revenue neutral, for instance, yeah. paid leave insurance, right? Right. Self, you know, that's essentially a self-funded benefit. Um, or, you know, things are paid under disability insurance. Um, what are some of the more structural, fundamental changes in the way the welfare state works that might bring us to a system that is much more comprehensive, such as like, the kind we see in Western Europe right now, where, you know, I mean, everyone, revenue neutral goes over better, but ultimately it's about redistribution of resources and changing material sort of structural circumstances. Right. So think about how much money our tax dollars goes to corporate welfare in lots of different ways. One way is just handouts. Oh, you need to sell McNuggets to China? Here, take our money to help you sell it. You know, fair enough. You want to sell a product, but why should my tax dollars subsidize that? Or the loopholes of I pay rent in a tax-free country or state, and I suddenly all my stores are paying so much in rent that we didn't have any profit in fill-in-the-blank state this year, so we're not paying any taxes. Get rid of that. that it's it's um, a huge amount of money. Five times as much as we would need to provide paid leave and sick days and child care, quality child care, and let people work reasonable hours. Easily we could afford to do this. And so it means the kind of things Elizabeth Warren is talking about, serious change in um, closing those loopholes, stopping those giveaways, and also understanding that, as you know, we subsidize low wages. So those corporations get a second handout because 
their workers earn so little that they have to get food stamps or medical assistance or whatever else it is. Make it so there's a decent wage, and which is what people want. They want to take care of themselves and their families. They'd much rather not have to go there. And we'll be okay. And when I say those kinds of things, and someone will say, oh, but I don't want my... Ta- my kids are grown. I don't want my tax money going to child care. I'll say, you know, I'm glad that you're worried about where your tax money is going. How much did you know about where it's going now? And what about all those corporate handouts? And, um, you know, in Wisconsin, there was a truck that caught on fire on the highway. So fire engines had to come. A deputy sheriff was directing traffic, got hit by a car. So ambulances had to come. All those things cost taxpayer money. Turned out that company was Walmart. They paid no taxes in Wisconsin because they paid rent in another state. And, um, that's pretty shocking. When people hear that, when, when we make it public, then they're a lot less willing to go along with it. And the problem is it just happens off our radar screen. People don't know about it. So if we could really restructure that, it's just a just making a just accounting and the same thing with social security you know the proposals that people have made why are people the richer you get you stop paying into the fund when you think it's just the opposite the richer you get the more you pay into the fund so take away that little gift and we could easily have a much more fair and just society so you mentioned the other NRA. I was funny because I was in D.C. Right. This, this week for, for the National People's Action and the Domestic Workers Conference, but then on Monday they met up with the Rock United folks right. who were going to have a lobby day, right. trying to get there the day before the other NRA was going to be there. Right. So it was kind of fun. But yeah, I, I did want to ask you about, um, because there are a lot of opponents to the spread of paid sick days. We've seen these sort of preemptive bans on paid sick days um, ordinances. Who are some of these people, coalitions, businesses that are spending their money trying to stop this stuff? And and how are you and others in the movement really taking them on and challenging that? I live in Wisconsin. In Milwaukee, we won paid sick days by overwhelming majority in 2008. A wonderful ballot initiative. Lots of groups were involved. The Chamber of Commerce immediately sued, lost on every front, but took two and a half years. And in swoops, Scott Walker and his allies... And who asked them to do it? Alec and the Restaurant Association. And Alec took that bill uh, that summer, and um, basically it was a bill that said, <laughs> I love this language, the state has a, has a need to have a uniform standard of family leave, so no city can pass a paid sick days law. Well, hello, number one, the uniform standard of paid sick days in the state is zero. It's a little little hard for them to say that. So they pick family leave. The whole point is that family leave only covers firms of 50 or more, doesn't cover routine illness, isn't paid. That's why we need paid sick days. That bill went to the ALEC conference that summer and got passed around and um, with the blessings of the Restaurant Association. So they've been two of our biggest foes. And one of the things that's really helped is who knew who ALEC was? the work that Color of Change and other groups have done cementing the connection between ALEC and stand-your-ground laws Mm -hmm. and uh, putting pressure on big corporations to leave ALEC because of it has been really helpful. And what we've done is that many groups from different sectors, including people that care about fighting uh, obesity and uh, food labeling and anti-tobacco, anti-smoking groups, anti 
gun groups. We have a common interest in this because they also face the problem of preemption and bans. What is this really? They call it preemption. You know what it really is? Not only do they want to limit who can vote, they want to limit what we can vote for. It's a total attack on democracy, and so we're making that appeal to people. And one of the ways they work is under cover of night when no one's looking attaching it to some bill and pushing it through like they did in Wisconsin. We're making it harder for them to do that. So while it's true that they have passed it in a few more states, we have also stopped them in a number of places, in Washington State, so far in Pennsylvania, so far in Michigan, um, in Oregon, and we are keeping them from going forward in a number of places just by naming it the way that we have and working together. So we've talked before about how paid sick leave and paid family leave will help women stay in their jobs and and contribute to fixing this gender wage gap. I'd love you to elaborate on that a little bit for our beloved listeners. You know, it helps, I think, if you think about the trajectory of so many women. It looks like this. You work really hard to be both a provider and a caregiver for your kids. Then one of your, you know, and you get sick, you just suck it up and go in anyway. But when your kids get sick, it's much harder to do that. So you do exactly what society has told you to do be a responsible mother, follow the doctor's orders, and you wind up getting fired. Then you have to find another job. It's really hard if you don't have savings, and who does if you're low wage? Um, you get in debt. And you get another job, but the same thing may happen, and you may wind up losing it. So then you start to look like you have a spotty work record, and you have maybe a payday loan, and then you get credit problems. That keeps you from getting a good job. Look how many of these workers go to school. God knows where they get the time and the um, energy, and then they have to drop out because they can't pay the tuition or pay back student loans. And so you're in this cycle you can never get out of. Your pay will never catch up when you're in that cycle. And not only that, then you get criticized for being a bad mom because your kid needs school lunch. <laughs> um, so it's, it's uh, vicious. If we, any measure we look at pay, whether it's, people say, for example, oh, women, they trade income for flexibility. Yeah. The lowest wage jobs are the least flexible. Right. It's just a myth. Yeah. Um, but at the, let's talk about the high end. You want to advance and you've gotten in a good profession and then you have a baby. And even if you take a small amount of time, that may can be, work against you, your pay for the rest of your life. You know, think about it. When, if you lose a job and then you get another one, then your starting salary is going to be lower, and then all your raises are based on that starting salary. So you, you're either your actual caregiving or the anticipation that you will be a caregiver is used against women and keeps them both from advancing and from getting pay, and, you know, it's uh, uh, a big chunk of pay that's taken out that they can never get back. So, of course, women remain responsible for the majority of the unpaid caregiving that goes on in this country, which is, as we've mentioned, why these are important feminist policies, but it's also a feminist goal to ensure that the unpaid caregiving is more equitably distributed. Um, How do we craft family policy that actually encourages men to do some more of the caregiving, and how does a broader movement for time off work, like paid leave or shorter working hours in general, play into that? What's so exciting is we actually have a body of evidence about this. In California and New Jersey, where there is paid family leave, there's been a big increase in the number of men who take that leave, both for their partners but also to take care of their kids and to take care of their parents. 
And we know that that will work, that there are a lot more men who want to be good fathers and good sons and good husbands, but they get punished for it at work, and the family can't afford the financial hit. So this is, a, this is the way to do it. And these laws, of course, are all gender neutral. Right. Um, and the same thing is true of paid sick days. I can't tell you how many men I've known who, you know, in trying to be a good dad and either uh, get to work a little late because they're feeding their father who had a stroke or because they're taking their kids to daycare and then they get absence points and then they, you know, get disciplined and wind up getting fired for being a good dad. So every step like this that we take will help uh, women in two ways. One, by themselves helping take away the punishment for being caregiving caregivers, but also by helping men share the responsibility and the joy of taking care of kids and parents. It's also true for same-sex couples. Same-sex couples want to care for each other in sickness and in health, and paid sick days and family leave insurance will help them do that in a way that most of them aren't able to do right now. Mm -hmm. So all kinds of families are helped by this. You mentioned before the... um the fact that you know part-time jobs can be paid less, that part-time jobs are often sort of the, the method of sneaky discrimination, and it's interesting because a lot of you know a lot of people would perhaps choose to work less and be able to have more time with their families if paid if part-time work were better. Not even better. Let's just use the word if it were equitable, mm-hmm. if it were fair. All we're asking, it's not a special favor for part-timers. The truth is, we could. the case has been made. Research shows that part-timers are more, not less productive. Yeah. That they can accomplish more. Just think about it this way. That when you think about people saying, well, I, that person puts in more hours and so they're more worthy. Really, do you want the doctor that takes care of you when you go to the emergency room to be the one that's been on a 36-hour shift? Or would you rather have one fresh? And the same thing is true at work. Uh, some of the best companies have 35-hour work weeks. And you know why? Because SAS Software is one of these companies in North mm-hmm. Carolina. The CEO makes people... Look, the gates close at 6. Yeah. Nobody, including the CEO, stays. And they don't take work home. And why? Because they believe that rested workers are more productive workers. And, you know, if you just think about your, anybody or their own lives, yeah. this is true. We do better when we are rested and not stressed about our kids. So having on-care child care, as they do at SAS, yeah. you know how many sick days they have? As many as you're sick. They, they look into something called emergency backup child care. This is yeah. your kid is sick. You, so you can go into work, you take your kid to some place where there's a health professional to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And the more they looked into it, the more they said, well, wait a minute, if your kid is sick, wouldn't you just want to stay home with them? Yeah. And what kind of message would we be sending if we set up this emergency backup child care? So they didn't do it. Because they wanted people to feel. And guess how many sick days people take? As many as they need, not more, not less. They get well, they come back. The turnover rate at SAS in an industry that has a 20% turnover rate is 3%. It saves them $67 million a year. Just that little fact, $67 million. So, you know, people who accuse us of being anti-business, why would we want, we don't want jobs to fail. We want people to be able to support themselves. We're not anti-business. Smart businesses know that doing it this way is better for them. I can't say it's better for the individual profit of the one or two or three people at the very top, but they do fine. But the company itself will flourish. You treat people right, and people will be more productive, higher morale. They won't want to leave. That all saves money.
I remember when they were um, going back and forth in the debate over paid sick days in the city, and there is this insinuation on the part of the industry people try to game the system by taking extra paid days off or something like that. And it's like, seriously? <laughs> like, I mean, people ultimately want to work. That's why they got hired at your place. Right? right. And guess what? We also have evidence on that. People take less than they earn. Yeah. And the reason they do is two things. One, they see it as a kind of insurance policy. Because you can carry over days. You can't get more than the total. But January, February, when you haven't earned it yet for the next year, you, that's when your kids get the flu and that's when you get sick. Yeah. So people tend to carry it over for that reason. Mm-hmm. And also people don't want their coworkers to be mad at them and you know, um, mm-hmm. they want to be able to carry their weight. Right. Yeah. So are there some slackers among us? You bet. But the biggest abuse right now is mothers who get fired because the school was closed because it was too cold and they had a 10-year-old kid with special needs and wouldn't leave that kid home alone and wind up getting fired. That's the abuse. You want to worry about abuse, stop that. We can, the rest is a management issue. We can fix it. So going back to this idea, um, in your book you, you, um, uh, you talk about... In my uh, book, Taking on the Big Boys? Taking on the Big Boys, <laughs> yes. We'll relate to that. You talk about this idea of social justice feminism, yeah. right? Which, of course, is... Um, is a term that uh, might not be that familiar to everyone, even if they've uh, you know, heard the term feminism before. Um, and one of the challenges um, in feminist organizing, especially in recent years, has always been um, you know, a, a class divide and sort of a suggestion that feminism is sort of the domain of the privileged white middle-class professional woman, right? Um, so how do you get past some of those barriers and look at some of the really crucial intersections like the ones that you've just been talking about and then try to bring that to a wider audience people can see that, you know, yes, like society as a whole is invested in this feminist project. So, first of all, you know, I, I we claim domestic workers as a feminist group, rock as a feminist group, home care organizing as a feminist group. It doesn't have to have the word feminist in it to be something that promotes equality uh, for everybody. And we also understand that you can't talk about justice or equality for women unless you talk about all women. Well, all women aren't just women. They're also people of particular age, particular race, particular sexual orientation, etc., physical or mental ability. So we have to look at all forms of oppression. And the same people benefit from keeping down this group and that group. So we have a lot in common. That's what we have to understand. So, so that's all social justice feminism means is that we need to end all forms of oppression or we won't have done our, we won't have won for anybody. I'm not willing to give up words like I'm not willing to give up the word life, for example. Um, it's outrageous to say that um, people who want women to have, make decisions about when and whether and how to have kids uh, are against life. Of course they're not. They love uh, life and they just want more control over how it works. And I'm not willing to give up the word family values. It's why we took it for our name of our organization. And I'm certainly not willing to give up the word feminism because some women in that name have in fact acted in ways that were either unmindful or outright racist. Those were mistakes. Every group, every movement has groups who make, uh, you know, who do things that are inappropriate. But we don't throw out a whole concept because of that. And I think there are lots of really exciting women's movements in our country today and have been for a long time. They just aren't the ones that the media necessarily interviews. That doesn't make, make them not real. Nine to Five is you know, a feminist group from a long time ago. 
um, but seldom was sort of called on for that purpose. That doesn't mean that it wasn't legitimate. You know, I was trying to think of a good, like, May Day-related thing to ask at the end, because it's May Day. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, like, the, in the city, at least, like, some of the big things that are being advanced are things like, you know, universal pre-K, paints, you know, like, right. these, these really bread-and-butter issues that right. are, like you said, they are fundamentally feminist issues, even if that's they don't right. have feminism. That's right. Well, and, and let's take the other thing that's happening on May Day across the country, and that's immigrant rights. Yeah. The theme of those marches is don't separate our families. Yeah. This is... There's a lot of great work that's been done to help put the face of women and children and families on the immigration issue. And it makes it a lot harder for people to dismiss when they realize, oh, somebody left their own loved ones to come and take care of ours or to come and work in a shop to feed those loved ones that they haven't seen in eight years. Or people that are, when you someone talks loosely about send them home, they have American citizens who are their children or their other relatives, and we're separating families. We say we care about family unity. Why would we be doing that? So I feel like there's been a much broader appeal of the immigrant rights movement because of it. And so May Day is very much, to me, uh, about the leadership of women and about fighting for something that has a huge impact on women and families. Que viva. And that was Ellen Bravo, Executive Director of Family Values at Work. We and we, she and we wish you all a happy May Day. And, but before we let you go, it is our favorite time of the podcast, as always, a time when we say, arg, I wish I had written that. This week, I was out and out busy um, working and reporting this weekend, and so managed to miss the uh, outrageous freak out over uh, Donald Sterling, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team, and the tapes of him being, well, racist. So I managed to miss a lot of think pieces about this subject, but the one I did read and the one that is worth reading um, was by Michael Denzel Smith of The Nation, and it's called Donald Sterling's Impolite Racism. And in this piece, uh, Michael points out that Donald Sterling has a long history of racism that we, in fact, knew about. Um, he owns a lot of houses that he t- turns out he does not like to rent to people who are not white. And he's been sued for this a few times and had to settle in 2009. But as Michael points out, the tapes of Sterling's conversation with his girlfriend, um, not wife, girlfriend, he does, in fact, also have a wife, um, they also offer more insight into the structure of American racism and the way it works, and also the structure of American capitalism and the way that works. And on the tapes, the girlfriend asks, you know you have a whole team that's black, and he says, I support them and give them food and clothes and cars and houses. It's really telling to listen to this and think about, well, does he give it to them or do they work and earn their pay. And whatever you may think about the salaries that professional athletes make, um, we should all probably be able to agree that those are not gifts that are given to them by their benevolent white billionaire owner. Um, The language of sports team ownership is always so interesting. Michael writes, it's the insufferable marriage between racism and capitalism that allows both systems to continue functioning and oppressing. According to the recording, Sterling, a wealthy white man, sees no issue with profiting from the labor of quote-unquote his black players because he provides for them the basics of survival. The premiums placed on ownership. Granted, because these are men making millions of dollars, it's hard to see how this relates to the trials of the average worker. But as it is that 
at the top of the income scale, so it is at the bottom, where labor is extracted from people and they are expected to be grateful for whatever they receive, even if it's not enough to provide for themselves. For people of color, that work is devalued even further and the level of gratitude expected even higher. And pretty much everyone is okay with that. So as we think about the latest kerfuffle over the latest rich white man who runs his racist mouth, think about the actual structural conditions that racist billionaires get to create every day. Speaking of the plantation mentality, which is a phrase that has refreshingly come back into into vogue since Mm -hmm. this sorry incident. Um, So my uh, pick for this week was called Separate and Unequal, the Charter School Pedestal, The Public Can't Reach. It's by Tremaine Lee at uh, msnbc.com. It's a long-form piece that looks um, offers a really fascinating glimpse into this phenomenon called co-location between a charter school and a regular public school in New York City. Um, it's part of the uh, sort of success academy uh, chain of schools that has been courting so much controversy lately, and so we have this success academy in Harlem that is co-located with, a regular, um, with regular public school students. And um, while we tend to think about uh, charter schools in terms of comparative statistics and test scores. Uh, What the author does here is really interesting because it kind of looks at the tensions that arise when you have two groups of students who are basically each other's equals, but they're vastly different in terms of the resources they are afforded. And you basically have two separate worlds um, you know, jutting up against each other in a single building. And the tensions this produces, the class tensions, um, the enormous tensions of privilege and, and the kind of um, private sector philanthropy that is basically subsidizing the charter school versus the regular public school that gets nothing, you see such a stark difference. And it's co-location that almost sort of rubs it in the face of these people. And... Um, what I found really fascinating was just this idea that you can have these two vastly different worlds serving essentially the same community of students. And the thing that makes the difference is that one is a charter school and is able to bank on the sort of noblesse oblige of Silicon Valley and all these other uh, big donors and, uh, and this whole sort of uh, culture around charter school philanthropy that is, is you know, is able to portray itself as just, you know, doing it for the children. But in reality, it just sheds light on some really, really corrosive inequities within the public school system. And the really heartbreaking part comes at the end where you actually have a quote from a teacher who's looking at these two rows of children. You know, one is, you know, in their nice uniforms and they've got all this stuff and cool technology and the others have basically nothing. They're in crowded, cramped classrooms, have no supplies. And she's basically saying, you know, yeah, you know, the enemy isn't even so much the charter school itself. It's really the system that allows this sort of vastly unequal funding. And that's really what we should be interrogating. And the scarcity of resources, the benefit of one school at the expense of another, is something that no school should ever have to deal with, and it really hurts everyone. And that'll do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. You can hear us again in two weeks. In the meantime, you can listen to our archives at descentmagazine.org. Take it easy. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.